Thank you this morning that we are able to come into your presence by faith on the certainty of what Christ has done for us. Um, and Heavenly Father, it is your presence and access to your presence uh, at your throne of grace where we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need that it's, that's just where we need to be today. It's where everything's at. And so, Father, I pray that um, as we look upon your word this morning and continue just to try to keep the eyes of our heart fixed on you, we pray that every need would be met this morning in Christ Jesus. Pray that you would once again display your power and your authority and the endless riches of your grace to every heart that's here and that everyone could leave here this morning saying that they've heard your voice from your word by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen, good morning, good to see you guys. Got your Bibles, grab them, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 5. It says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. We're going to unpack it this morning. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, as always, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we could see wonderful things from your word. Uh, Lord, please take my broken, imperfect words, root them, tether them to your flawless word, and we pray, Lord, that uh, you would just help us today. Help us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, many of you might be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis, and probably the most famous of C.S. Lewis's works is a, is a children's series, but um, children and adults have, have uh, enjoyed it uh, throughout the last many decades, and that is the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, out of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's like a series of, of books. Um, the, probably the most famous is the first one, which is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, and the story is based around these three uh, kids, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, um, who are sent during, the, uh, during 1940, during the blitz of the German army upon London. They're, they're sent to live with a, a Professor Kirk at a large house out in the English countryside. And if you guys are familiar at all with the stories, so what happens as they're exploring this big kind of uh, mansion, they go into this one room and they wander into a wardrobe, uh, just kind of, of hiding. Um, and it seems on the outside just to be any sort of wardrobe, um, but it's a lot more than that. And what seems to just be a normal door with kind of a, uh, that would 
kind of leads to nowhere, so to speak, um, actually leads into a whole nother world. And I say that this morning because um, I think it's a beautiful way to kind of frame what Paul has been speaking of uh, in the book of Romans so far in regards to our justification by faith. On one level, as Paul's just been hammering away um, this idea of justification by faith or sola fide, as we've talked at at length over the last several weeks, it seems on one level maybe just to be a door on a wardrobe that leads to nowhere. but that's absolutely not the case. And uh, I would argue that last week, especially, although he's been doing this throughout, but especially at the beginning of chapter five, is what happens is as we go through the doorway of sola fide, of justification by faith alone, we stumble into this, into this other world, into this other land um, that is absolutely beautiful. And Paul has been explaining some of that for us, and I need to catch us up here because we literally stopped in the middle of a sentence last week. I don't know if you guys ever get annoyed when somebody does that to you. Did you ever have the person be like, oh, hey, by the way, I need to tell you. Oh, never mind. And then they just kind of turn away. That's essentially where we left off last week um, and in between uh, verses, verses 4 and 5. Um, and so Paul has been explaining this other world, talking about how we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access into this grace in which we stand, in which we are established. We have a new hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our future is certain. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering is not pointless, but that it's doing something. Uh, It produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And then finishing the sentence here at the beginning of uh, verse 5 that I just read, Paul goes on and, and he explains why this hope does not disappoint us. This hope does not put us to shame. And what the reason, kind of the big overarching reason that I'm going to just unpack all morning this morning in this flow of thought, because this is very much put together in a very logical sequence. Paul is making a very logical argument in this passage of Scripture, a logical argument that will absolutely change your life um, if, we can, if we can grab it this morning. Uh, but what he's saying is that the reason our hope is certain and our hope is secure is because our hope is, uh, is undergirded by God's love. And God's love, it, it, it's just completely unlike any other sort of love that we know or any love that we think we might know. God's love is amazing. And our hope in a glorious future is as certain as God's love for us. And God's love for us has been put on full display. And so I just want to walk through this this morning and, and describe God's love. And again, though, the end is that it is going to undergird our hope that we would live lives without fear and that we would live lives of joy, rejoicing, exalting, boasting, as we spoke of last week. And, and that, I believe, we will do as we understand God's love for us. God's love is what is at the bottom of all of it. First of all, the first thing Paul says here in, in verse 5 is that this love is experiential. This love is experiential. It's not just a concept. It's a concept, and there's logic. In fact, if I had to, I don't really do titles, but if I had to do a title to a sermon, I would call this sermon The Logic of Love. It's highly logical, and we're going to get there. But not only is it logical, God's love is also experiential. Okay? Look at verse 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame because, or for, here's why. Here's why hope is not going to disappoint. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Okay, Eric, where are you getting the experiential part? Well, let me show you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God's love has been poured out into our minds through information. Now, is that true? Yes, we'll get there. But I'm, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is that the love of God, when you are justified in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He comes into your heart, which is a part of you that exists and is real, although we never think about it. And he pours out, not just like drip, 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 but it's the idea of a flood. It's the idea of gushing. That he wants to gush out the love of God, not just some sort of um, abstract concept, but through the very person of the Trinity, one of the very people of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, into your life in order to know his love. It is experiential. Now, it's imperfect, this side of heaven. There will be a day when every tear will be wiped away from our eye. We will stand before him. We will no longer live by faith, but we will live by sight and we will be able to enjoy forever with new bodies that will have new uh, sensory abilities that are going to be able to take in and enjoy and savor and be satisfied in forever the love of God in a way that will be ever-increasing for all of eternity. You're like, that's a big statement. I know. That's our hope in which we rejoice, and it's coming. But what he's saying here is that even now, the reason our hope will not disappoint us is because we have on some level, if you are in Christ, you have tasted of the Holy Spirit and the love of God has been poured out into your hearts. Now I just want to, this has been, we talked about this at, small, at our small church anyway, on Wednesday night um, as I've been going through this passage and again I'm always kind of reading ahead and reading back and reading forward and I kind of know what's coming um, in the coming weeks as, as we look ahead in this passage. I like this, this verse here, I just, I, I, we could just sit in this all day. I, I want us to, to understand it. We are going to move on to more. But, but I want us to, the thing I want to press on hard, if that's okay, is that I think that many of us live our Christianity and live the Christian life. It's all just up here. It's nothing but just mental assent and it's facts and it's data, and it's information, and if we can just get a new piece of information, and, and again, we're all for learning. I mean, I think you guys know that. Again, I don't want to spend a, a bunch of time. I feel like if you've come to Mercy Hill for any amount of time, like we believe in, you know, God's given us a mind, and we need to do work, and, you know, I'm always like, look at the word for, and therefore, and since, and because, and like, like we engage our minds, but our Christianity is not just that. Are you with me? It's not just that. It's supernatural. God died, Jesus died to give us the Holy Spirit. And we are, let me zoom out here and give two really big ideas, two big kind of worldviews, okay? One is what I would call the we are children of the enlightenment. So I believe it was Rene Descartes, I'm not an expert on this, but he had that little phrase, maybe you guys have heard this in school or whatever. He said, I think, therefore I am. You're like, oh, brilliant, okay. Yeah, well, here's the idea, is that we're children of the enlightenment, this idea that Everything is summed up in like knowledge and science, and again, science means knowledge. This idea that we can just like self-actualize, become the best version of ourselves just through knowledge. Is knowledge a part of it? Yes, but it's not just that. 
And so when we come to parts of the Bible that talk about the demonic or the spiritual realm or maybe even like our heart or our soul or our spirit, we're like, eh, I don't really know what that means because we have no grid for it. We think that it's all about information and we think that it's all about the mind. And again, hear me, the mind is important, okay? But it's more than that. Now compare that worldview, compare that worldview to somebody, and I, I double-checked because I wanted to get this story accurate, with somebody like our brother Jonas Ramos, who preaches here as one of the interns, who grew up in Mozambique. And over there, um, not Jonas's worldview, Jonas you know, grew up, by God's grace, in a, in a Christian home, but, um, but the worldview is one of very much uh, spirit tribalism. And so ancestral spirits, false spirits, demonic spirits, very, very real. So Jonas tells a story of there was one lady uh, in the village that many people knew of that would uh, sometimes, I believe it happened more than once during certain times of the year, she would go and she would go down into a river and she would be down there for like 30 minutes like getting something and then she would come back up like alive. You're like, that's weird. That's a spirit worldview. And, that, and Jonas said like, yeah, if you talk to people, like tell stories like that, they, they, that stuff happens all the time. Because it's an entirely different worldview. Okay, that the demonic realm, the spirit realm, that's very real. My, here's my point. My point is that we, don't, we, we have no grid for that because we're all up here. Now, is this important? Yes. Is the spiritual realm important? Absolutely. The Bible tells us that it is. And again, I'm in no way making a case for engaging with dark demonic spirits. spirits but I'm saying that is a reality. That if we're going to have a biblical worldview... We have to allow the Bible to give us a grid for what reality is. And what the Bible says, and this verse is just one little place, if I can come back around, and hopefully you're following me here, where I'm taking you, is that it's not just about mental ascent. It's not just about information. That God's love has been poured out by the Holy Spirit, who is real, who is the third person of the Trinity, into a place in you called your heart. Are you with me? This is This is real. I'm not making this up. This is what the Bible says. We are body, soul, and spirit. The heart, we primarily think of the heart in terms of just like our emotion and kind of like our emotive response. In the Bible, the heart is much more than that. Um, you know, we kind of tie the heart to like feelings and emotion, maybe like, like a romantic love. You know, so Valentine's Day, we get little chocolate hearts or candy hearts or whatever with little cheesy sayings on them or whatnot. Um, in the Bible, the heart isn't just about emotion. The heart is like, it's, it's like the center of our being. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says of the heart, in the, speaking of how the heart is used in the Bible in this sense, is the deep-seated element of a person that provides both the energy and the drive for all the faculties. It denotes the governing center of life. Is that you guys, we're not just bodies, with minds, we also have a heart, a spirit that is the center of us. And the point here is that what Paul is saying is that if you have been justified by faith alone, that the Holy Spirit wants to come into the deepest, he, not he wants to, he does, he comes into the deepest part of you to pour out God's love. Now, it is, it is imperfect. Our experience of it 
is imperfect. I need you to hang with me here because you're saying, like, Eric, you're saying this is experiential, but like there's days, and maybe today's one of those days where I'm just not feeling it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's normal. It's not always. Here's what I would say, is that the actual experience of God's love being poured out into our hearts, while it is absolutely a reality for every Christian, it is also imperfect. The thing that I would most uh, likely, and maybe in the timeliness of even the weather today, compare it to is that this love and the experiential nature of it is much like, it's, it's much like the weather in March in Ohio. There are days where I think we had one just this past week, and I know we had a couple the week before, where it's pushing 70 degrees. And I don't know about you, but like when I walk outside, I don't want to go back inside. And I just want to stand out there a little longer, and I just want to enjoy it. And then there are other days, like today, and maybe, what was it, Friday or whatever, when it's just raining and a little bit of snow, a little bit of wind, a little bit of sleet, just a mess. You're like, summer is never going to come. If I can just say it like this, folks, the Christian life, this side of glory, is like March in Ohio. There are days when we feel it more than others. There are days when this experience is, is better than others. Yet it's real. And it doesn't mean the sun ever stops shining. The sun is always there. But I, but I think that, again, the reason I'm pressing this so much is because I, I, I want us, I want to be careful how I say this, while I want us to always love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. There's a level in which that I, and I hit run into this all the time, and I think it affects all of us, including myself, where the first thing that we always run to is just more information. Even good information. Even a good podcast or a good sermon on YouTube or whatever. Or Moody Radio, right? As good as all that is, you understand that Jesus died. And the heart of the new covenant is what makes it new, is that now the Holy Spirit comes and dwells with those who were once unholy. Because the blood has been paid. And God, like, do you understand? I get it. We just kind of like, I feel like we just said, okay, I guess that's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Um, God who set the stars in the heavens and called each one by name. If you've trusted Christ, he lives in you. What? Is that not amazing? And what he's saying here in this verse is, well, what's he doing? Well, a lot of things. We don't have time for all that this morning, but can we agree on one thing from this verse? He's in you to communicate to you how much God loves you. This is good news. This is gospel. It's amazing. And tasting it, uh, again, if, you can, if I can just sit in that metaphor for a little bit, those days when you, are, when you do tend to have an experience of God's love, like walking outside in the sun, what should you do in those days? Just enjoy it. Like in your Christian life, like slow down. Understand that before you were meant to do anything else, you were first meant for fellowship with the Holy Spirit. 
who wants to communicate God's love to you? Do you know that it's a command in the Upper Room Discourse, which we looked at last year? Jesus commands us. He says this. One of the last things he says before he goes to the cross, abide. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Abide in my love. Well, how do we do that? He said, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to help communicate to you this love of God that's not just mental ascent. Now, is it mental? I say, again, I'm saying it's experiential. Is it logical? Yes, it is. And I want you to look at the beginning. If you don't have a, again, a ESV, a more literal translation, will do this, and it's really important. It's part of the inspired word of God. Um, but like in verse 6, so Paul makes this statement. He puts forward this proposition that, that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's a truth statement that he's saying. And then he says, verse 6, he says, for. And again, I've, I press this as we've went through Romans that these words like for, since, because, therefore. Um, they're very important and they connect the flow of thought. And when you see the word for, it's giving the grounds for why what was just said before it is true. And so he's, you know, you're like, okay, so the Holy Spirit's in us, wants to pour out God's love. Paul's saying, here's why that's true, or kind of like, here's how that works. Here's the grounds of it, and here comes the logic now. It's not just experiential, it's also, it's also logical. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us. So he speaks of this experience of the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love into our hearts, into this part of us that we don't think about a lot of times, the deepest part of us. And then he goes on to tie it to concrete realities that actually happened in time-space history. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ really came, and he really lived, and he really died, and he really rose again. And so this experience of God's love, the Holy Spirit wants to take us back and always tie it to the person and work of Christ. That is not a fairy tale. It's not just a made-up story and something that we ascend to and then kind of live better lives. It's an event in history, the center of all of history, I would argue, that everything revolves around. Let me say this in, in terms of speaking of the experiential, and we're going to move on to the logical, but <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson sums this up as succinctly um, as you possibly can. I don't know how to say it any better than this. Listen carefully. He says, we do not measure the greatness of God's love by our capacity to experience it. Rather, we develop a capacity to experience it by understanding the greatness of it. Let me say that again. We do not measure the greatness of God's love for, of God's love for us by our capacity to experience it. Rather, we develop a capacity to experience it by understanding the greatness of it. In other words, on days when it's cloudy and rainy and wet and dreary in regards to you feeling like God loves you, that has nothing to do with how much he actually loves you. But the more that you seek to understand the greatness of God's love, which we're gonna go on to unpack here in verses six through 11, okay? The more we seek to understand it logically, the more the experience of it becomes real to us. Not just through mental ascent, but through the Holy Spirit working with the truth in our lives and in our hearts to be amazed 
by this love. Have you ever seen young boys, maybe girls too, but young boys especially, that want nothing to do with girls? Have you seen this? Jordy's maybe our last one that's in that category. You know, he just he turns 10 this week. And if, we, if you tease him, or if his brothers tease him at all about liking a girl, it literally makes him mad. Like he's not having it. That's not happening. And all boys go through that stage. But then have you ever seen when a boy transitions from wanting nothing to do with girls to, you know, they're not so bad? Have you seen that? And they become, well, yeah, they become, it, it's just, a, it's a transition. <laughs> Are you with me? You can use whatever words you want to describe it. But the point is, is that, like guys, in regards to God's love, again, in no sort of a romantic way, that's where the thing breaks down, the analogy breaks down. But like, we need to transition to understanding that this, this love with God, it is good and it is real and we were made to abide in it and to actually enjoy it and to love it. And as we look and seek to understand the greatness of it in these verses that follow, I believe it will, as Sinclair Ferguson said, increase our capacity to experience it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's the logic. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's more logic at the beginning of verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, objective reality that has happened through justification by faith alone, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we once were this, but we're no longer, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's kind of the first kind of flow of thought in logic, is if you look at verse 6, look at the word weak, again in verse 6, the word ungodly, in verse 8, the word sinners, and then in verse 10, the word enemies. We're weak, ungodly, sinful, and we were his enemies. And while we were in that state, God showed the greatest expression of love that has ever been shown by sending his son to die in our place. There is nothing that merited the love of God at all. It wasn't that some were seeking and some wanted a better life and some kind of had a, a little bit of faith or that were, there was a little bit of spark in them. Remember, go back to Romans chapter three. There is none righteous, no, not one. But while we were in this state, God showed his love by sending his son. Now, if you've been reading the book of Romans carefully, you will notice here that when he speaks of, of love, in verse 5, again, of this love being poured out, and again, of love in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this. If you've been reading carefully, you will find that apart from just a brief little mention uh, in the introduction, the first couple verses in Romans chapter 1, nowhere up to this point has love been mentioned anywhere. This is the first place where love is mentioned. You'll remember, I even pointed some of this out back in, in like chapter 3, where it was talking a lot about righteousness. So like chapter 3, verse 25, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And it said this was to show, not God's love, but it was to show his righteousness. Again, the primary thing that Paul has been dealing with is how we are unrighteous. We need a righteousness, not our own. 
And God shows his love by providing that righteousness for us. But here now, Paul is now speaking of this love for the first time in the book of Romans. And how does he describe it? What does he tie it to? What, what, what act does he tie the love of God to? He ties the, act, the expression of his love to the act of his son coming and dying for us while we were still in a sinful state. There's kind of a, a principle, it's kind of a loose hermeneutical principle that many will point out sometimes. Some people get hard and fast with it and it gets a little bit weird, but it's called the law of first mention uh, in, the, in the Bible, that wherever a word is mentioned the first time in the Bible, that that kind of very much shapes how we're to view that word and how it's used throughout the scriptures. And some people twist it a little bit, but there is some validity to it. The first time in the Bible that the word love is ever mentioned is Genesis chapter 22. God is speaking to Abraham, and this is the first time in the Bible that the word love is ever mentioned, and he says this. This is at the end of Abraham's life. You guys know this story. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, and here it is, Genesis 22:2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. The first time that love is ever mentioned in the Bible, it is tied to the love that Abraham had for his only son, and that he was going, that God commanded him to sacrifice him. Of course, if you guys know the story, God stops him from that because it wouldn't have been a fitting sacrifice because Isaac was a sinner just like everybody else, and so it would have done no good. But thousands of years later, Jesus Christ was going to come, and in, even a, in, in, in an even greater expression of love, God sent his son so that we would know that he loves us. And do you see here the contrast in the text? Again, the logic that he's working. He's just pleading with us to understand this, that this love is different than the world's love. He goes out of his way to contrast this type of love with the way that men love or, natural, or earthly women love. He says, verse 7, for, for one, one a, a man, a human being, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. You know, if, I, you know, if Eli is a really good guy, if he's really righteous, legit, like I'm going to be, and I, I have a, you know, time to like think it through, I, okay, you know what, uh, Eli, yeah, I'll do it. But you know, it's, uh, maybe, I think it'll be worth it. You know I love you, Eli. But that's not the type of love that God shows. Again, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. That's when it came. Brothers and sisters, this is a completely different type of love. What else do you want him to do to prove to you that he loves you? Because I'm convinced that many of us we live our lives deep inside, deep inside. Maybe not, but I, the more I talk to people, the more I understand my own heart. I think this is true on an unbelievable level. Deep inside, many of us, even as Christians, we have our fist clenched and we are shaking it at God. There's a deep bitterness there is the thought that he has wronged us. 
We look at the pain. We look at the suffering. We look at the difficulty. We look at the abuse, the things that have happened, and I am in no way minimizing it. But what I am wanting to do is I want us to be honest about it. Because we take that experience then, and man, you know, the love of God we're not too sure about, but in terms of those experiences, man, we soak it in, and we marinate in it. And we go, this must be what God is like. God is evil, God is mean, and the whole time Paul is saying, no, God sent his son. He loves you. The reason there is pain, the reason there is hurt, the reason there is suffering is because of sin. You know where sin came from? Us. Jesus came to reverse the curse. Jesus came to make all things new. That's what he's doing. And we can enter into this whole new world way better than Narnia through simple faith. Just believe. Just believe. Some of you this morning, the greatest application you could pro- that you could possibly take away from this sermon is to right now, by an act of your will, whether you feel anything or not, just say, you know what? I'm going to confess with my mouth and I'm going to believe that Jesus loves me. My life may not, you know, it, it's hurt. I don't know. I can't reconcile all this. That's all right. That's why we live by faith. But some of you need to just say, you know what? I, despite whatever that has happened, I'm looking at this text and I'm just going to believe it that if God sent his son for me when I did not absolutely not deserve it, how much more, if I will just trust him, is he going to see me through to the end? And how much more does he absolutely have good things in store for us? There's this little phrase in the middle of verse 6 that in between where it says, while we were weak, and it says, and Christ died for the ungodly, there's that little phrase, at the right time. And it's the idea of just, at just the right time. And it's funny, as I read commentaries and things about this past week, some people were talking about, like, is the right time in history, you know, that, that, you know, the gospel went forward, you know, during this time when the Roman Empire had expanded and, um, you know, the Pax Romana was in full effect and, um, uh, and uh, there were roads built throughout much of the known world and so the gospel was able to spread and travel like the timeliness of that or is the timeliness in regards to when God sent his son um, the timeliness regarding all the prophecies that were made about him like yes yes and yes all those things are probably true but I think the timing that he's talking about here is just simply the timing of when we were weak when we were ungodly when we were sinners when we were enemies At that time, God, he preemptively acted. It wasn't in response to anything. He preemptively, he took the initiative to act. There's this story in Mark chapter 2 that I just, I just love. You guys are probably familiar with the story. It's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Mark puts it right at the beginning of his gospel. It says, And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on a bed, they let down on a bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their heart, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now listen. He goes, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven 
or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So he's like saying, like, which one is easier to say? Then, but then he goes on, verse 10, and he says why he said it. He says this, but that you may know. He wanted them to know. He goes, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man does. Here's the point. Is that in this packed house and outside the house stood Jesus preaching. Everyone else saw one paralytic. Jesus saw nothing but paralytics. He saw nothing but people paralyzed in their sin. He saw people that were nothing but weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. And in love, he doesn't just want to speak and raise up that man. He wants to speak to all of them that they may know that he has authority to forgive it all. His authority to take it all away. That's what Paul is, is pleading for here, that we would get. And if he did that while we were his enemies, here it comes. And you're going to, throughout chapter 5, it's just, you're going to see this phrase again and again and again over the coming weeks, because we're going to go pretty slow through chapter 5. It is what I would call the much moreness of God. If you, had, if you wanted to use just not a, really a textbook uh, academic definition of what grace is, I would call it the much moreness of God. And here you see it a couple times just in these verses. Since therefore, now that we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Remember, I think it was week one or two in the beginning of the book of Romans, we talked that how when Paul speaks of salvation in the book of Romans, justification is the done deal. Like now, like if we've trusted in him, we're justified, and in that sense, we are saved. But when Paul speaks of salvation, he's also speaking of a future day when we will all stand before God in his holiness. And what is going to save us from the fire of his holiness in that day? It is the fact that we have been justified and that we stand in it, and that we have an intercessor. And this is what Paul is speaking of here. He's saying, look, if he died for you and gave his life when you were his enemy, how much more now that he's alive and your friend, your brother, your shepherd, your high priest, how much more is he going to see you through all the way to the end? Do you see the logic of love? I would just say to you, brother, sister, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And like we give excuses for our fear. We give excuses for our, for our worry and the things that cripple us and the things that we hold on to and the painful things that have happened. You have no excuse. I'm sorry. I have no excuse. God's love has been poured out through the death and resurrection of his son. And it is enough. God's love for you is greater than whatever pain has come into your life. I'm sorry, hear me, I, listen, I know that this, I, I just, I, it is not lost on me in this moment that if you, the different hurts that are represented here, I'm not just trying to preach to sound good, I'm, I'm being so real right now. But here's the thing about our pain, we like to hang on to it and coddle it, and it's mine. I'm sorry, God's love is greater than your pain. God's love is greater than your hurt. And it starts by first just acknowledging that and being willing to let go of it. And you and I have no excuse not to trust him.
None. How much more? He goes again. The much moreness, we shall be saved by him from his wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Another Bible word. You're going to see it three times here. Circle it. Look carefully at it. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God on, by the death of his son, much more, again, shall we be, uh, much more now that we are reconciled, there's the word again, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, so much more, much more, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. It's another word that is given to give a full, robust understanding of our salvation. Just, in justification, the sinner stands before God accused, like in a courtroom, but he is declared righteous, not guilty. In redemption, that we saw also back in chapter 3, in redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, and he receives freedom from that slavery. And in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but he has now made a friend. That we don't need to be afraid, even though we have ongoing sin and sin struggles in our life. And so we want to back away from God. No, 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 no. He, he died for you when you were his enemy. He knows about your sin. Now that you're his son or his daughter, he's for you all the more. Again, much more, much more, much more, much more. This is reconciliation. Bring it... It's the idea of just making things right, Ma- making things square. If you've ever like done a done a deal, paid a contractor, bought, it's like, hey, are we are we all squared up? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're squared up with God <laughs> because of what Christ has done. It's amazing. Second Corinthians chapter five. Listen, <clears throat> Paul says this: for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ, listen, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, you know what? When, I, when Paul went out to preach the good news, he actually believed that he had really good news to share. He wasn't just pretending. And he goes on, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Implore you. Let Paul plead with you this morning. Let Paul implore you, be reconciled to God. Come to him. He says, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me let Richard Sibbs try it. And worship team, you can come up and we'll close. Richard Sibbs, old school good guy, Puritan, in his book, The Bruised Reed. He says, what should we learn from this? 
but to come boldly to the throne of grace in all of our grievances. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there precisely for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ, although trembling, as the poor woman who said, if I may just touch the hem of his garment. But we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason, that we might go boldly to him. Never fear to go to God since we have such a mediator with him who is not only our friend but our brother and our husband. Will you come to him this morning? Will you please come to him this morning? Christian, non-Christian, if, listen, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, if you do not know where you would spend eternity, let me just, if I could, look at, look at you in the eye. I don't know who you are, but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. That is what the word of God says. It is enough. Come to him. And if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in him, but in this season, his love feels distant. It feels like a continuous, rainy, cold, dreary March day. I would say the same thing to you. Come to him. Just believe, again, that according to the word of God and according to what God has done through his son, that he loves you. And that this Maybe dark night of your soul is not going to last forever. Maybe you need to repent this morning of thinking that God's love is like man's love. It's not. It's totally, it's totally different. And again, he invites, us, he invites us into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, I pray that as we stand and sing that we'd be able to receive it. pray that we'd be able to receive it not just mentally, although we don't, we don't turn off our brains, but not just mentally, but with and in the power of your Holy Spirit. You would let us experience your love in our hearts. And Lord, that you would once again change us from glory to glory to ever-increasing glory.